As we continue our study in Mark's Gospel, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark 14. We'll be looking today at verses 12 to 31. And because of the length of the text, I'm actually going to read it throughout the message today. Mark 14, looking at verses 12 to 31. As you turn there, I need to serve you a warning. Uh, The statement that I'm about to read you will not agree with. Even though it comes from the pen of a pastor, a scholar, a medical missionary, the 1952 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, and, according to Time Magazine, July 1949, the greatest man in the world. In fact, the lines I'm about to read, uh, you would not only disagree with, but they very well can make you angry and make me angry. But you need to know that this view of Jesus popularly exists. In colleges all around our country, this is what is taught about your Lord and Savior. Here's the excerpt from Albert Schweitzer's Summary of the life and death of our Lord. There is silence all around. The Baptist appears and cries, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus. And in the knowledge that He is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring about all ordinary history to a close. But it refuses to turn. And He throws Himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes Him. Instead of bringing in the end times, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is now hanging upon it still. Graphic imagery. Someone trying to to steer that massive wheel of a ship, not being able to get it to turn, and then throwing all of his weight into it, only to be ultimately crushed by the wheel. In other words, Schweitzer is telling us that Jesus tried to steer the ship of history, but was crushed by it. His betrayal... His suffering and His death serve as perpetual testimonies of His frustrated designs to bring about the rescue of the world. So what do you think? Is Jesus really, as another writer has described it, 
like a mangled doll in the merciless gears of history? Or was he in control? Even in the closing hours leading up to his death on the cross, did everything really happen according to his plan or or did it get away from him? See, our answer to these questions will have massive implications for our outlook on life and our preparation for eternity. To deny Jesus' control would indicate that we are likely at the mercy of some unknown power, slaves of blind fate, the evolutionary process. This would entail that all of our pain and suffering and disappointments in this life are meaningless. We have no hope apart from impersonal forces and other people who are subject to the same conditions as we are. However, if Jesus really was in control of those final hours, and He really did rise from the dead, it's a different story altogether. We may experience the same pain, and suffering, and disappointment, but we can face those with hope, knowing that our Lord could have a higher purpose for the pain, and the frustration, and the disappointment in our lives, just as He also steered the dark events of His final hours to secure the salvation of the world. In a similar way, it gives us hope that He can also steer the dark events of our lives For His glory and our good. Knowing that Jesus was in control of those final hours also gives us hope in that we know that no matter what happens to us here in this life, ultimately, everything is okay. He actually accomplished what He set out to do. To borrow the popular phrase, come hell or high water, in this life, everything is fine. Amid what could look like an account of impending tragedy and failure, Mark provides us with some historical, tangible hope that can only be found in the gospel. He's going to present a different picture of Jesus than Schweitzer did, who interestingly, supposedly based all of his research on the gospels. Mark's account of Jesus in his final hours doesn't seem to let on in any way that things are spiraling out of control for him. His account presents Jesus' messianic identity and mission as good news. His death is good news. This is actually something to look forward to. Based on Mark's record, Jesus is the divine Messiah, destined, yes, to display power and authority and to bring in a new eschatological kingdom. But he's also destined to suffer and to die and to rise again. This was no accident. If Mark's account is true, it's great news as Jesus offers concrete hope in the midst of all-consuming darkness. We're in some of the darkest pages of Mark. And yet, he writes in Mark 1.1, this is good news. So let's listen in. Learn. As God's Word today highlights Jesus' preparation for the darkness. 
And when you note Jesus' preparation for the worst moments of his life, I think it'll teach us to anchor our hope in Jesus alone in the midst of our own dark days and disappointments and disasters. Specifically, we'll see three expressions of Jesus' preparedness for his end. His sovereignty over evil, his suffering for sin, and his scrutiny of our weakness. Let's begin by looking at his sovereignty over evil in verses 12 to 21. And we'll walk through these slowly. Notice Mark 14, verse 12, so you can get an idea of what's going on here. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat Passover? Now, Again, a simple verse, but I want you to just note, just from the chronology that Mark's presenting here, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, he is cluing to us that Jesus is less than 24 hours away from his bloody crucifixion. That's what you need to know. This is important. Because as we read the rest of the verses, I want you to ask yourself a question. How do we find our Lord in these final hours? Is he panicked? Scared? Worried? Or is he calm? Confident? Collected? Does it seem like he's losing control in any way? Let's continue to read and find out. Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and whenever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there, prepare for us. Now, I don't know about you, but as I just read this text, we're entering into this time where he's 24 hours away. I don't know how I would feel if I knew I was going to die in 24 hours, but he seems pretty calm. He's in control. He's doing basic, ordinary, everyday things. He sends his two disciples onto what seems like a supernaturally designed errand to prepare for the Passover meal. I mean, he doesn't seem out of control at all. And when you look at the details of what's going on in even these few verses, we don't have any record of any prior plan of Jesus, but he just speaks, and he says that, all right, here's what's going to happen. You two guys, you're going to walk into the city, and you're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water, which is unusual, by the way, in that culture. Normally, women were the ones who carried water back and forth from the home. So these guys are going to show up there at the exact time that this other guy happens to be walking with a jar of water on his shoulder, and they're going to see him, and they're actually going to follow him, and then they're going to follow this guy and go into the house that this guy goes into, and then tell the master of the house, the owner, these words from Jesus. And notice the presumption in these words. Where is my guest room (laughs) to prepare for the Passover to eat with my disciples? Now, I don't know how that strikes you. I just couldn't imagine somebody coming to my house, like following me home, knocking on the door and saying, all right, where's my room? I'm staying here tonight. 
But that's exactly what Jesus says. He's fully in control, it seems, of this situation. Like, he's telling him, all right, you do this, and then you're going to prepare for this Passover meal, and then everything's going to come together. And then notice, with this long shot in mind, notice verse 16, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, this isn't a huge account, but I do just want you to note that Jesus in no way, shape, or form seems to be out of control. It seems like, even from something as menial as this, that he's got things handled. And this is really important to know as we read verses 17 to 21. Keep Jesus' prophetic impeccability in mind as we read these next few verses. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now notice this, it's Thursday night, they're technically eating what they expect to be a Passover meal, and they're a day ahead of the official schedule. It was allowed in the culture of that time because of the high numbers of people coming into Jerusalem. So he's even closer to death than he was a few hours ago. And question, do we find him panicked? Is he scared, or does he seem purposeful and settled? Is he in any way losing his grip on the will of history? Doesn't look like it. I mean, can't you see him here, calm, as he is, quote, reclining at table and eating? Can you hear the confidence in his voice as he says, truly I say to you? Remember, those very words, truly I say to you, mark a solemn, deliberate, official pronouncement wherever you see them in the Bible. Now I want you to note the content of what he says. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. He knows what Judas has been up to. And he goes out of his way to show that he knows. Even to the consternation of the entire group. When each of them panic and ask if they are the betrayers, Jesus simply affirms, it is one of the twelve. What none of them would have ever guessed, Jesus knew from the very beginning. This is a different picture than what we see presented to us in popular literature today on Jesus. With the addition of this little line, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, Jesus is even further emphasizing the intimacy shared with the betrayer. Meals in that culture were a family affair, a display of loyalty, a token of trust. And he's saying that even though this would seem like the least likely group to ever have someone betray him, this is the very group that he knows that this person will come from. He's in control. We and the readers are thinking, why will the Son of Man and the Divine Messiah be betrayed? How could that ever be part of a good plan? This can't possibly be what he wanted, and yet we look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
Jesus will be betrayed because it was destined in God's book. It was written of Him. The betrayal would lead to His crucifixion, which would lead to His resurrection, which would lead to atonement and forgiveness. It was all part of the plan from the very beginning. The crucifixion was not a detour in the predetermined plan of God. Rather, it was the destination itself. And so do you see the amazing interplay here between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? It's absolutely mind-blowing. Sovereignty. Betrayal and death are inescapable parts of God's plan. Before time ever began, God had decided that this would take place. That's what we mean by sovereignty. We see this in Isaiah 53. We... The Old Testament already predicted that there would be this suffering servant who would come and atone for the sins of the people. They knew this. This was the plan. But we also see responsibility. Notice this. Even though the betrayal was predetermined by God, note that the betrayer will still be responsible. This is deep stuff. Jesus preemptively pronounces graphic judgment upon Judas, declaring it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Those are strong words. Are any of you tempted to think like I am? Man, this judgment seems a little harsh. After all, it was God's sovereign plan. How could Judas be responsible? I would argue that divine providence neither cancels human freedom nor relieves responsibility for moral choices. Like two tributaries converging to make one river, the currents of divine sovereignty and human decision, divine foreordination and human free will intersect in this one word in the narrative, betray. God knew from the very beginning And Judas wanted to, all along, hand Jesus over. This is why Peter, who Mark got most of his source material from in writing this book, Humanly Speaking, would open his sermon at Pentecost with these alarming lines about Jesus. Just jot down this verse and you can look at it later. Acts 2.23 This Jesus, listen carefully, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Notice this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see sovereignty and responsibility there? I'd encourage you to meditate on that one a little bit this afternoon. It'll give you a headache. It says, the foreknowledge of God delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. Yet, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Somehow, even the most heinous betrayal and horror is used to accomplish the sovereign plan of God. Who can resist his will? And at the same time, who can abdicate themselves of any responsibility? It's mind blowing. The point here is that Mark intends for you to see your Lord. At the moment of his greatest trial, not as one cowering in fear or wringing his hands in worry, but one resolute to accept the dark providences of God. And how could such an understanding of Jesus affect us? Practical implication is that once you see your Lord in this way, 
You can better accept the horrors that wage war on your own soul, your own family, and the world around you. The same Jesus that was in control of the details of a Passover meal and the designs to be betrayed and crucified is also in charge of the details and designs of your life even when, I say this compassionately, even when things don't turn out the way you wanted them to. Hardship, trauma, excruciating trials, they come. You will be sinned against. Those people will be responsible, and yet God will still in some way be working His perfect plan. That's what this view of our Lord shows us. When we embrace the sovereignty of Jesus in the darkest hours and over the most dastardly deeds, we too will be able to say with Joseph, Though you meant it to me for evil, God meant it for good. We would be able to say with Job, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And even better, we'd be able to say with our Lord Jesus, Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Ultimately, we anchor our hope in Jesus. On account of His sovereignty over evil, He was prepared for this all along. He steers the ship of history exactly where it needs to go. Yet there's another evidence or expression of Jesus' preparation in these dark hours. And that is His sacrifice for sin. He's not just sovereign over evil, but He plans to sacrifice Himself for sin. We can anchor our hope in Jesus on account of His sacrifice for sin. Look at this brief account in verses 22 to 25. As they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and He gave it to them and said, Take, this is My body. And He took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I remember we're asking, was Jesus prepared for His death? Was this an accident that we look back on and say, oh, I hate that happen? Or, or was He actually trying to accomplish something in this betrayal and in this crucifixion? It seems like from these verses that He has something very specific in mind that He's trying to accomplish what they think will be the worst possible outcome, death. Here, He will reveal to be the best possible outcome, eternal life. At this point, Mark's readers, and you need some context here, you've got to remember, it's easy to dive down on the details, but remember that Mark was read all at one time, typically. Mark's readers and the, the disciples at this point know little to nothing about why Jesus would have to die. For those of you who grew up in church, you're like, yeah, I get it, I totally understand. But understand this, they don't get it. They don't understand. Mark hasn't even told us. Has that struck you yet? Mark hasn't told us why Jesus has come to die, except for one reference in Mark 10.45, and this is all he said. The Son of Man would come and give His life a ransom for many. He hasn't read Paul. We haven't read Romans. We haven't read 1 Thessalonians. We don't know anything except what Mark's telling us. And right now, it is mind-blowing to a Greek 
or to a Gentile. That God would die on a cross. It is grossly offensive. It is like cussing to say that the Jewish Messiah would die on a cross. And Mark hasn't explained it. Jesus hasn't really explained it until here. Why did Jesus Christ suffer and die? He gives the explanation. And the answer to this question had been with them all along. It had been with them in the symbolism of the Jewish Passover. For those of you who may not be familiar, Passover, when you hear that term, it was a ceremony, it was a celebration, it was an official holiday that led the Jewish people to relive and re-experience their liberation from the bondage of Egypt. We read together as a church the account of that in Exodus 12 just a few moments ago. God had promised to make them a great nation, right? You remember that? He made that promise to Abraham. Yet, here they were in Egypt, languishing away as slaves. Great nation, slaves. Something's not making sense. Until one fateful night, when God poured out His judgment on their oppressors, killing all the firstborn and sparing only those who preemptively killed a lamb in faith and put its blood on the doorpost as prescribed. That night, in Jewish history, while judgment rained down bitterly on God's enemies, His people were spared judgment and even enjoyed a meal together on account of the blood of a lamb as a substitute for the firstborn that would die. And because of the events that night, Yahweh's people would be delivered, saved, same word, from their oppressors, and finally be free to live as His special people. And so, Yahweh determined that His people would annually relive these events of the Passover night so that they would remember how He liberated them into a special relationship with Himself. It is almost impossible to exaggerate the significance of this meal for those Jewish people. As Americans, we don't have anything like it. We celebrate holidays and we don't even know what they're for. On July 4th, we may or may not go see some fireworks. And even then, the shooting off of fireworks actually technically celebrates the War of 1812. Not even the Revolution. We just don't have any deep symbolism in our country. We're only 200 years old. And yet these people, having languished through thousands of years, knew the significance of that event and they celebrated it with vigor. And with that in mind, Jesus, on the night before His death, takes that bread and He rips it. And He dispenses the juice of those crushed grapes, full well claiming Himself to be the ultimate referent of Passover. His death was their true liberation from slavery. He reconstitutes the entire feast around Himself. And He claims that liberation from oppression and that their establishment as the special people of God And that their full and final salvation will be enjoyed when He returns to drink again that fruit of the vine with them new in the kingdom of God. 
Three things are being communicated here through this changing of the Passover meal from what it was to what it is today. The first was their initial liberation from bondage. Because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the death that He would die, they would no longer be enslaved to sinful oppressors. Second, it was the blood of the covenant poured out for many. Look, you need to understand that the Exodus was just a part of the deal. Ultimately, what it led to was them becoming the special people of God. It led to their existence as a nation. And so, in celebrating this meal, they were not only acknowledging their liberation from sin, but they were also acknowledging their incorporation as the special people of God. They were going to be His chosen representatives. And then thirdly, he mentions not drinking this wine again until it is new in the kingdom of God. He intended for this meal to remind them not only the salvation that they already enjoyed, but of the full and final salvation to come when he established his kingdom here on this earth. So it looks back, looks around, it looks ahead to the manifold blessings of God accomplished in the cross. Now they could finally understand what was the cross about? It was about liberating them from sinful oppressors. It was about making them the special people of God. It was about God's coming kingdom, fully celebrated, absolutely inaugurated. So what is Jesus doing here in the Last Supper, and how does Mark intend for us to respond? Why do we need to know this? Here it is. He wants them to understand that Jesus did not lose control of the will of history through His death, but that He actually steered it so as to secure their salvation from sin, their initiation as the special people of God, and the ultimate culmination of God's plan in a coming kingdom. See, just as the memorial meal of a slain lamb invited those Jews to remember what God did for the nation of Israel via Passover, so also the memorial meal of the Lord's Supper invites us to remember what Jesus did for us through His crucifixion. So, If you are one of the many for whom Jesus died, that's what's in the text. If you were one of the many for whom Jesus died, I have a couple of practical instructions for you on the basis of this text. The first would be this, do not forsake this meal. Today we celebrate this as a gathered church on a regular basis commemorating the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord. And it is not something to be taken lightly. I think sometimes we approach the Lord's Supper as like, well, here's that extra thing that we do that keeps me from getting to lunch as quick as I would like to. And when you see it in the text, you realize like, this is of pinnacle significance. Like, it's the preaching of the gospel that helps us remember what Jesus did. It's baptism that helps us remember what Jesus did. And the only other divinely prescribed thing that God has given to help us remember what Jesus has done for us is that bread and that juice. And it is a big deal. It was interesting when we were reading the Exodus 12 passage. As John was reading, I noticed for the first time that it said that this would be the first for you. This would be the beginning of your new year. Every time we come to this, this is first for us. It's almost like a new chapter in our lives is opening as we remember what Jesus did for us again. It's been interesting. I've been doing some study. I haven't told the elders about this, guys. You can talk to me about it later if you don't like it. But I, 
I've actually been contemplating some of the communion practices down through church history. One of the things that's been fascinating, and don't worry, I'm not going to do this, but in the 16 and 1700s, Presbyterian churches, when they would do communion, it was so serious to them that they actually minted coins and they gave them out to people who were in good standing so that they could come and verify that they had actually contemplated and prepared themselves properly for the Lord's Supper. You weren't allowed to partake unless you had one of those coins. And they would fence the table. Some men even died because they wouldn't extend communion to certain prominent members in their parishes. Don't worry, that's not what I'm thinking. But Charles Spurgeon, interestingly, came across this article written by his brother. You know him to be the famous pastor from the late 19th century in London. And it was his brother who was like the administrative pastor of the church. It was their practice to actually take attendance at communion. They didn't take attendance any other time. But they would take attendance at communion, and if somebody didn't show up for more than three communion services, the elders would get together, divide up the names, and then go pursue the church members that hadn't gone to communion because it was that important to them. It seems like we don't have that same gravitas when we approach the table today. All I want you to understand is that this is a big deal. And we should prepare. We should look forward to it. We should know that it's happening. If you're one of the many for whom Christ died, I would encourage you not only to not forsake the meal, but don't confuse the meal. You know, you could absolutely adulterate and spoil this meal on a couple of accounts. One is by what you know. The second is by how you live. I'll talk about how you live before we actually do communion, but let me talk about what you know. Don't confuse this meal. You need to understand, contra the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that the the bread and the wine, when we pray for it, actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. That is not true. Don't think that it is. We are not actually eating the body of Jesus. I'm only saying this because I know some of you come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. I want to be really clear. We're not eating the body or drinking the blood of Jesus. He is not being sacrificed continually. He said, it is finished. It is paid. We are remembering that experience. We are actively enjoying the fellowship of Jesus in a special way. I'll give you an example of this. When Jesus says, this is my body, it would be like me saying, this is me. Now, for those of you who can't see, and I really doubt that anybody in the back can actually see this, this is a picture of me and my bride on our wedding day, and that's me. But it's not actually me. It's paper and ink. But it represents me. It represents me on that special day, one of the most special days of my life, when I covenanted with this woman in marriage. And in a similar way, when we partake of communion, this is Jesus. Broken. Bloody. On that day, when He offered His life for us. We remember in a vivid, special way. I like to think of communion as pulling out the picture again and 
remembering what our Lord has done for us. And by partaking with our mouths, we evidence the fact that we are sustained by Him in faith until that faith becomes sight. So we can anchor our hope in this Jesus on account of His sovereignty over evil, His suffering for sin, and finally, His scrutiny of our weakness. His scrutiny of our weakness. Look at verse 26. Just note it. I want to show you how to interpret your Bible. When you're reading a story and you want to get to the next thought, you're wondering like, how he moves on. Like in normal stories, it just takes place by moving you on to the next physical location or scene. So in this case, Mark notes for us, when they had sung a hymn, ending this memorial meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we're in a new section in Mark's narrative. And while they're on the way, the other gospel writers would tell us that Judas at this point slips out. They're headed to the Mount of Olives to pray or to sleep for the night. And this conversation takes place. Let's read about it in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Pause for a moment. Crucial, crucial context. What's going on here? What just happened? Jesus has just communicated to each of these men that He will die for them, that His death will inaugurate a special relationship with Him, and that He will return and drink new wine with them in the future kingdom. He has just shown them ahead of time grace. Knowing all the while that they in return, will present failure. Their weakness does not surprise Him. He told them that He would die for them, that He would bleed for them, that He would suffer for them, even though He knew from the very beginning that all of them would fail Him. He even predicts it on the basis of Scripture. He comes from the Old Testament See that little thing in a, in a quote? It says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting from Zechariah 13, 7. There's this passage, rather enigmatic, but referring to the slaughter of this end times good shepherd. The Jews had no idea what this would look like or what this would mean, but Jesus clarifies it for them here. Where Jesus chose to emphasize that His death will still happen directly at the hands of God. Interestingly, in the Hebrew... It just says, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. But Jesus adds the terms, I will strike the shepherd, emphasizing God's activity and striking down Jesus as the sacrifice. And the point is this, when that happens, the people of God will fall away. Their shepherd leader had been killed. It's a graphic picture. Imagine a shepherd walking through the desert with all of his sheep following along in tow. And then all of a sudden, falling over from a heart attack or being struck by a bolt of lightning, where do the sheep go at that point? They're rather simple animals. They don't know where to go apart from where the shepherd goes. 
So they begin to scatter. And Jesus says, this is what will happen to you. And he knew. This didn't take him by surprise one bit. He scrutinized their weakness. He knew them better than they knew themselves. Their initial failure did not derail his plan. He was fully prepared. And even though they would fail him, he immediately gives them hope. Look at verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, this is a strong adversative. He's changing the direction of the conversation with that little word, but. Their failure is going to be reversed. How? By the resurrection. The striking of the shepherd would indeed result in the scattering of the sheep, but the resurrection of the shepherd would result in their regathering. Their failure wouldn't be ultimate. Yes, they would fail, but he would ultimately come back and reconvene them. He would bring them back together. They would still be his special people. Ultimately, the kingdom of God that Jesus embodies and brings cannot be derailed by human failure. They will fail and flee Jesus, and yet he will still succeed and secure them. The account continues. Peter's not accepting this, obviously. Verse 29, he said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, I think we've seen some pretty good stats on Jesus' prophetic ability. Uh, if, if he was playing baseball, he's batting a thousand, right? We don't have any strikes. He gets on base every time. And yet, Peter, brashly, speaks as if he knows better than Jesus and the Old Testament Scriptures. And because Peter is the most brash in denying Jesus' prediction, Jesus goes into the most agonizing detail about Peter's failure in particular. You know what it's like to have failed before? And then somebody to remind you of it? They can do so generally, like, hey, you messed up here. Or then they can go into agonizing detail, outlining all the specific ways that you blew it. (laughs) And Jesus does this for Peter ahead of time. He is humbling him. He says, you won't just deny me, but you'll do it three times. This isn't a momentary slip of weakness. He will actually, on record, disown Jesus three different times. And lest we place too much emphasis on Peter's bravado, Mark reminds us that they all said that they would not fail him and that they would be willing to die for him. What's this about? Why does Jesus and Mark give us this account of accurately predicting the disciples' failure? It shows that he was prepared for it all. Schweitzer looks at this and says, look, the guys got scared, they panicked, they ran away. Jesus would have had no idea that those people were going to abandon him in his time of greatest need, and yet Jesus says it so clearly, like, I knew this was going to happen. I knew that you're weak. I knew that you were going to fail. And guess what? He still dies for them. And that really needs to resonate with you this morning, because if you divorce the prediction of failure, what I've called the scrutiny of their weakness, from the prediction of suffering, his sacrifice for their sin, you will miss the point. 
Do you see how we have another of those Markan sandwiches that we've been referring to throughout the book of Mark? The Last Supper is the meat in the middle. And it occurs between an accurately predicted betrayal of Judas and an accurately predicted, as we'll see next week, defection of the disciples, thereby conveying exactly the kind of people who Jesus will die for. Failures. Failures like them. Failures like me. Failures like you. We do not partake of the benefits of Christ's death because of our merit. It isn't because we were so worthy and we were so great that He died for us. It was because of the exact opposite. It was because we were weak that He showed His strength. It was because we were sinful that He sacrificed Himself for us. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 8-10. Notice what I emphasize in the reading. Just listen. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He continues. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, By the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. You get that, right? 1 John 1, 8-10 makes this even more clear. John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Now notice he goes back to the main point again. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The point is, Jesus came to save the lost. (laughs) These are the people for whom Jesus dies. Jesus was prepared not only for his betrayal and sacrifice, but he was prepared for our failure. It doesn't seem to me that the ship of history ever left the calm hand of our Lord and His control. It brings me comfort. It calms my soul and it gives me rest. Yes, we may blow it. Yes, we may fail. Yes, we may lose control, but He's at the helm steering everything exactly to where it needs to be. You see, it's texts like this one that shake you out of your self-confidence so as to make you confident in the Savior alone. This whole scheme of betrayal leading to suffering and death was to secure your salvation. And this is why I say that we can anchor our hope in Him alone. That's what it's inviting us to do. He's prepared. He's ready. And this is why we sang earlier, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The last verse. For my life He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. 
raised with Him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when He comes at last. You understand the emphasis. It's not about what we do, but it's about what Christ has done for us. So as we acknowledge our failure and our faithlessness, what else do we do? We anchor our hope in Him alone. To borrow another metaphor, we feast again on Christ in faith. We realize He's all we have. Practically speaking, for some of you, this may be you responding to the Gospel for the first time. You've heard people talk about it. You've listened to it. You've seen communion services take place before. Maybe you've even participated in that. But my question for you is not, have you ever drank the wine or ate the bread? My question is, Are you feasting in Christ on faith? Have you found your nourishment and satisfaction for all of eternity in Him alone through repentance and faith? That needs to happen today. That's what our church exists for. If you're here and you're like, I don't know that I've done that. I'm not sure that I've done that. I think I need to do that. Before you leave, just talk to one of us. We'd be happy to explain that to you. This is how you respond to a all-prepared Jesus. You trust in His preparation, not your own. For others, you've already responded. What do you do with the truths of this text? Maybe something as simple as relying on the gospel once again. That's what communion's all about. Remembering that your right standing doesn't come from your efforts or your faithfulness, but His. I think sometimes we think that. You can express this in private prayer, of course. But even better, a more tangible way, you can express your faith in Christ anew through partaking of the Lord's table. This is why we do communion to remind ourselves of the gospel and our need for His grace. So as we prepare to enjoy this meal once more, let's remember that we're commanded to partake in a worthy manner. The message is over. We'll prepare now for communion. I'll ask our pianist to come and the men to go ahead and make their way to the back. And I want to just read for you 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 29. This is an appropriate way to open our time together. Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, typically I take the time before communion to teach us something else about it. Now, the entire message has pointed to this. But I want to draw out a distinction that I don't think I've brought out in the past that could help you as you partake of this meal. I want you to notice something. Paul here doesn't prohibit unworthy participants from observing the Lord's Supper. He prohibits unworthy participation. Big difference between the two. I mean, if that was the case, if unworthy participants weren't allowed to partake, none of us could partake. 
we've been accounted worthy only through the justification that comes from Jesus alone, our faith in him. So in Christ, all his followers are technically made worthy to participate. You need to understand that. If you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus as evidenced by the fact that you've obeyed him in baptism, you're walking with him in the company of his church, we encourage you to participate with us, even if you're not a formal member of Faith Bible Church. Paul's concern here is not unworthy participants, but unworthy participation. In the context in 1 Corinthians, there was some disunity that first needed to be remedied, and there was some sin that had not been confessed. So just barging into the Lord's Supper apart from consideration of how one had sinned against God and others was how one participated in an unworthy manner. So, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, and or you're harboring sin against Him or one of His people, or if you're simply not sure, then I would encourage you not to feel any embarrassment as we participate, but just let the elements pass you by. We, we don't have people come forward here. We distribute the bread and the juice to you. You can use this as a time of reflection. So we're glad you're here. If you're one of the ones that needed to ask a question or wanted more clarity on the gospel or there's unrepentant sin in your heart, just pray. Just take care of that. But this is for the unworthy who have trusted in Christ alone. So with that in mind, Let's prepare our hearts by confessing any known sin to the Lord. We'll have another moment of silent prayer. You can confess any sin that you're aware of, any disunity. Now would be the time to reconcile that. And I'll give you a few moments to pray silently, and then I'm going to close our time of preparation and prayer, marking the beginning of our time around the Lord's table. And I'll give you more instructions at that time. Let's pray silently. Almighty and most merciful Father, I would each of us in this room at some point between the last communion meal and this one have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We follow the designs and devices of our own hearts. In some way, shape, or form, we've offended your holy laws. We've left undone the things that we ought to do And we've done things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your gracious work in Christ, there is nothing healthy in us. So have mercy on us, O Lord. Or forgive us for how we fail you. Or forgive all those who confess their faults today. And restore all those who are truly repentant according to your promises declared in your word. We rejoice And what we read in 1 John 1, 9, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess them. And so, Lord, we acknowledge our need today. We rely on you. And we feast again. We nourish ourselves on the sacrifice that you've provided. You're our only hope. That's what we express in this time together today. Thank you for forgiving us 
for uniting us into one body. Thank you for the kindness with which you have delivered us, for the promise that we have of your coming kingdom. Allow us now to fulfill your command to partake of this meal in such a way that it would bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.